Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. search for restoration. I want to again just read a, a passage of scripture uh, from 1 Peter uh, 5.10 uh, and then use that as a basis for uh, a prayer for this final hour that we have together. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, uh, the God of all grace uh, who has called you uh, to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you would pray with me. Lord, we come to you. and uh, Lord, if we're honest, it feels like we have suffered for much more uh, than a little while. Um, but Lord, we do admit we need you to restore and confirm and establish us. And so we come to you. We ask for that. We pray that you would use this part of our time together and and just continue to work those things in our life. Again, we love you and we're learning to trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, when we talk about the search for restoration, uh, restoration just means to put something back in its working order. Uh, to bring something back to the point that that it works as it was intended. And so our sense of trust, uh, emotion, relationships, how do we bring those things back to where they are restored, where they are functioning as they were intended and designed to function? Um, you know, one of the questions that we would ask is just how long? How, how long would this take? Uh, and David Pallison again gets us started there. He says, the damage you suffered may have been done in one or more terrible moments. The healing and restoration, however, unfolds at a human pace. It unfolds at your pace. It unfolds as a part of your story. Sometimes Christians make you feel uh, that if you could just get the right answer to your problem and you could apply it, your problems would instantly be solved. If there was just the right truth, the right insight, the right something, if you had enough faith, it would make it all better. But that's not God's way. God is a vine dresser who carefully and slowly prunes his vines through the years. God works on us in the scale of years over a lifetime. And I think some of our tendency is to view that as a bad thing. But I think on another hand, we can step back and look at it. And I would not want to go to an orthodontist who moved my teeth in two months over what should take two years. Uh, They would fall out. Uh, I couldn't bear up under six months of chemotherapy in six weeks. Uh, But using that imagery of vine dresser, I think there's an additional way that we can look at this. A lot of what is unhealthy and broken, those chains that wrap us up, 
are things that we rely on. Again, they may not be most healthy, but they're things that we've learned to support ourselves with. That sense of mistrust, some of the anger, some of the coping mechanisms. And if God took all of those chains that supported us and he cut them away all at once, chances are we'd fall to the ground like a rag doll. We would be like a jellyfish on dry land. And so he cuts them away at a pace where we can begin to learn to trust and we're, we're beginning to get on our own feet and strengthen those muscles a bit. And he heals us at a human pace because that is gracious and good and it's what we can bear. Dan Allender, he says, substantial healing, a phrase he picked up from Francis Schaeffer, underscores the possibility of deep and meaningful alteration without blinding our eyes to the fact that permanent and final change awaits the transformation of the world through Christ's return. And so when we talk of transformation, I want us to hear both that there is, there is real and substantive hope. Things can be significantly better with all of the kinds of things that we were talking about, anxiety and flashbacks and trust and relationships. Um, but if we ask, when are we going to get to that point where it's going to be as if this never happened? When every tear is wiped away and every pain is removed, uh, like every other struggle that we face, be it abused or not, uh, there are elements of that, uh, that that is not removed until that final work uh, that Christ does when He returns and He makes all things new. Now as we move towards restoration, and we say, what are some of the elements here? One of the first that I would highlight is that of regaining your voice. Uh, Dan Allender says, abuse strips a person of the freedom to choose. I can remember talking to one lady who was in an abusive relationship. It wasn't sexually abusive. It was manipulative and physically abusive in another way. And, and one of the things that her abuser would use to taunt her whenever she would try to talk back in some way is he would just give her the question, who do you think you are? And she felt paralyzed. Like she had to be able to give an answer like, Princess Diana, the Queen of England, a rock star, a PhD, a published author. It just, it felt like there had to be this big and, and grandiose answer. And in talking with her, again at this point not really advising that she had the conversation with him, but just as it echoed in her own mind, um, all you need to say is that I'm a person free to make choices. I don't have to be special by whatever criteria that you would put on fame and intelligence or talent. I'm a person free to make choices and that means I should not be subjected to abuse. And your question is itself manipulative. And again, my advice in that situation was not to her to say that. She needed to get to a safe place. Um, but as she had that dialogue in her mind, it's what I wanted her to feel free to say. Allender goes on to say, to live with a dead soul makes deep sense to an abuse victim. Again, just not to hope. It hurts too much. But he says, love is not the absence of anger. 
In fact, an absence of anger makes love anemic and devoid of passion. Again, part of regaining our voice will be saying that this was wrong and it should not have happened. And what we need to recognize oftentimes, because we get uncomfortable with anger, especially if the abuse was angry and violent as it took place, we begin to feel particularly unsafe with that emotion. But emotions are not like the breaker box in your house. Again, if I'm putting in a ceiling fan in my living room, I can go to the breaker box that says living room, I can turn that one off, and I can still prepare dinner in the kitchen because I can just turn that one off and leave everything else running fine. Our emotions are not like that. I can't go in and turn off anger and expect anxiety and peace and joy and anticipation and any, all the other emotions to operate as they should because when I distort one, it affects the others. Now, one of the questions that comes up in regaining my voice is, should I confront my abuser? Uh, if so, uh, when and why? Um, now, in terms of when, uh, I will only give one time when I would say it should absolutely happen. Uh, and that is if someone else is in danger. Uh, and in that case, the confrontation that needs to happen is through the legal channels uh, of reporting that. Um, and so if someone else is in danger, that is really the only point where I would say this absolutely should happen. Uh, outside of that would uh, give a few comments here, um, but more would direct you. If you go to summitrdu.com backslash abuse, uh, there's a litany of resources that we have there. And one of those is an article by Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. Uh, that walks through this subject of whether or not to confront, am I ready, uh, why would I do that in greater detail. But a few thoughts there. One would be, when you have support, uh, this is not something that you should do when you're in isolation and you haven't talked to anybody else about what's going on. Because the likelihood that you're going to be silenced, that this is going to be denied, that it's going to be counterattacked, that you're going to told you're making this up and you're crazy, and the sense in which you begin to just feel paralyzed by that, there, there is a high probability in that kind of situation. So you need to have support. And, and because of that, I say it's generally something that's done towards the end of the recovery process. Um, and it's not always possible. Now, if you say, why? Um, I'll give you a, um, a why not. Uh, I don't think it's wise to confront with the expectation that you're going to get an admission and that's going to bring closure. I think you're perfectly justified in wanting that. I'm just saying it is a low probability enough that if that is your expectation going into it, that's your, your hope, then the likelihood that there's going to be another one of those points where my hope gets elevated and then I crash down and it hurts, um, I don't think that is the, the best or appropriate reason. I think it should have a purpose. A purpose more than just because I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do next. Uh, it might be, I want to explain to you why I'm not coming for the holidays. I'm not going to sit around a table and have a meal and have everybody talk and act like nothing happened and me sit there and have to eat the food in order to be polite when my stomach's turning and I absolutely don't want to eat it all and I'm just not being fake anymore. Or I want you to know why 
you will never be alone with my kids. And if you say anything to make me feel guilty about it, that is absolutely manipulative and wrong and every bit as evil as what you did before. And we're going to be honest about this and we're not going to live as if it didn't happen. Or maybe it's just simply because I'm tired of living in two worlds. And if I have to choose between being honest and protecting you, I'm going to be honest. Because this whole thing about protecting you at the cost of me living in a fake world, I'm not doing it anymore. Now again, chances are for many of you, that may be the first and only time you've heard it monologued what it would sound like to talk to an abuser. And so another resource that I would recommend is chapter 5 of Mark Driscoll's book, Death by Love, where he gives a series of pastoral letters that highlight different aspects of the gospel. Uh, and in chapter 5, he writes to someone who was abuser, and you hear the strong words uh, of correction and rebuke that would just give you a sense of this is what it would sound like to address this subject, someone who has done this in the way that it needs to be addressed. Now, um, I can't give a seminar, hardly ever, without having a Chronicles of Narnia reference. Uh, I'm just a sucker for talking animals. Uh, there is a scene uh, in the first of those books that did not make sense to me. Why it was worded the way it was until this aspect of finding your voice after abuse began to make sense to me. Uh, it's in the very beginning when Aslan, who represents Christ, uh, has created all of Narnia. And he calls the animals to himself. And as he is giving them this litany of things that he's giving them, uh, I give you this world, I give you the grass, I give you one another, I give you myself. He makes a statement that just seemed weird. Aslan says, I give you yourselves. You belong to you. You don't belong to another person to be done with as they please. I give you yourselves. And the creatures respond, we hear and obey. We are awake. We love, we think, we speak, we know will not be dominated. I will not be silenced. I will not be told uh, what is true when I know it's false. I don't have to do that. God gave me myself. And I am not yours to own. I am not yours to dictate to. And that is a big part of what it means to have a voice is the kind of thing that we see uh, in that exchange. And as we talk about finding restoration... I think there are some very tempting traps. And as we go into this, again, I want you to hear me speak with great compassion. And I hope that I've earned enough trust for us to delve in uh, to some of the areas of where we're going. Um, and again, I would say these are some of the end of the journey or middle of the journey truths. And if you say, I'm just not here right now, I think that's okay. Uh, but Dan Allender, he says, the primary purpose in facing victimization is not simply to know how one feels about it, but to expose more clearly uh, the victim's subtle patterns of seeking life and comfort 
apart from dependence upon God. Um, again, as we, as we have these unhealthy coping mechanisms, they're a way to try to find peace, to try to find security, to try to find identity apart from Christ, apart from God. Again, it makes total sense why we would do it. But in many ways, it's like drinking salt water. It's wet. I'm thirsty. I look at it. I take a drink. There's this moment of relief, and then, ah, ah, I'm thirstier, and I drink again. And the more I drink, the thirstier I get. And it just, it feels like this vicious catch-22. And what Allender is saying to us is that in the midst of our, our unhealthy coping mechanisms, uh, that's what we're doing. He says, honesty about the form of self-protection also helps the victim see the small choices of life in a larger vantage point. And I think a, a thing worth noting here is that oftentimes, uh, I think the statistic, I'm giving a rough estimate here, is about 80% of counseling in the area of sexual abuse does not begin as sexual abuse counseling. Uh, it begins as counseling for anxiety or panic attacks, uh, for depression. Um, because I'm having conflict in relationships and I don't feel like I can trust anyone. And then in the midst of that, they say, yeah, and I was uh, molested by uh, my babysitter from the time I was eight until I was 12. But I'm sure that doesn't have anything to do with it. And honesty about what happened. Uh, honesty about what's going on and the kinds of things that I've learned from that and the things that I just had to do in order to survive is part of what uh, we have to be willing to do in order to be free from that. Uh, David Pallison, he says, when you are uh, living for your own protection, comfort, or desire to escape, uh, you are not loving God or the people around you. Hear me say, do not hear that as a guilt statement. Now, you may look at me and say, how, am I, how else am I supposed to hear that? Uh, and I get it because it, it kind of sounds that way to me too. But if I could give you what I think God would be saying for, to you in a statement like that, I think He would be saying, you are not as free as I intend for you to be. And you are clinging to the things that keep you in bondage. And you need to see that bondage before I can free you from it. You have to mistrust your fears. You have to doubt your mistrust. Because as long as you cling to those things for life and hope and safety, you will not come to me. And you'll not allow the people that I'm bringing into your life that I want you to love and them to love you and that to be a source of healing. You won't utilize them in the way that, that I and them are there. You're not as free as I mean for you to be and you need to see the bondage before we can move forward from it. And one aspect of that uh, is a very painful subject. It's an awkward subject. It's one that often in the context of abuse is, is not spoken of well. It's the, the subject of forgiveness. And I would begin by saying, if we have a wrong view of forgiveness, it will radically distort 
every relationship that we're in. Be it an abusive one or not. If I have an exaggerative, unhealthy view of what it means to forgive, then every relationship feels unsafe. Every relationship feels like it either is or will asking too much. And so start here with Dan Allender. He says, forgiveness built on forgetfulness is a Christian version of a frontal lumbotomy. Wrong and stupid. Oh, that we could forget. Give me the blue pill. Just let it go away. Forgiveness is not something to be pushed on the abuse victim. It is an aspect of the healing process, but not a bitter pill to swallow. It must be assumed, not commanded. Hear me say this. To some, this may sound heretical, but I am very comfortable saying it even in a church setting. If you say, I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to forgive. I would say God is patient and He is okay with that. It is a part of where you need to go. It is a part of the freedom that He has for you. But if I were to offer a parallel for just a moment... um, when I teach or counsel in the area of adultery, and, and it's usually one of those areas where, uh, where there's been a lot of deception for a long period of time, and, and the good guy, bad guy hats get turned very quickly. So the one who's been unfaithful finally comes clean and repents, and then they expect the one who has been hurt uh, to forgive, and if they're not forgiving, then they're bitter and they're sinning against God. And the statement that I make to the offending spouse is that you need to give as much time for your spouse to forgive as it took you to come to repentance. If it took you two years of hiding this and saying that she was lying, that no, you weren't doing this, this was all in her head, and you expect her to forgive in two weeks, that's hypocrisy. And I think as God recognizes that the duration of time for which we have carried this in silence with no compassion, no care, not knowing what to say, not understanding what was going on, no way to process the hurt. He is not a rushing God. I love the imagery of Psalm 23. He's one who walks with his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. He is not one behind his sheep, driving them, yah, yah, to get through there. But he is one who comes alongside and walks. And I think we see the patience uh, of God. Allender goes on to say, If repentance does not occur, the victim can still forgive by offering bold love, but relationship cannot be restored. Again, some people, am I just supposed to trust them again? No. Especially not if they're repenting, not repenting and acknowledging what happened. Uh, but not even necessarily if they do. Uh, forgiveness and restoration are just two separate issues. Um, it, David Pallison, he says one of the reasons uh, this is hard to do, talking about facing the unhealthy or sinful coping mechanisms, 
is that your response to abuse, and you can just mark through the words usually seems, um, is that your response to abuse is so much less wrong than what happened to you. Your life was ruined. So you are bitter and unforgiving. He goes on to say, and I'll just draw a clause from another sentence. Alternatives to forgiveness, bitterness, fear, holding a grudge, never trusting anybody. And what we begin to see is that bitterness is not the only alternative to forgiveness. Sometimes just living in fear is the alternative to forgiveness. I just hold on to this hurt and it is the lens by which I see my world because I cannot let go of it. And so I live in perpetual fear or not trusting. I just hold on to this hurt so much that no, nobody is ever going to hurt me again and I will not give them the chance. And so the, the alternative to forgiveness is not just bitterness. Sometimes it's life in fear or never trusting And I think we begin to see why God would hold out forgiveness as such an important, good thing. Now, if you look at me and say, I'm open to the idea, how how would I begin to forgive? Um, I'll just offer a, a few kind of guiding statements here. Forgiveness begins with being honest. Begins with feeling. Uh, forgiveness is not about feeling happy or feeling neutral towards what happened. Forgiveness begins with anger, with grief. And then I think a a next part of it is something that we often say, but just takes on new meaning in the context of what we're talking about here. It means realizing that the debt that was created is something that could never be paid. I mean, we say that about all sin. And I think it's true of all sin. But I think we feel it in a way here. There is just nothing. You could pay for my college education and my house. Just nothing that could make this right, that would make this better. And as I realize that, then I begin to realize that the only thing that can be done with what happened is I have to release this to God and recognize that what was done is going to meet one of two fates. It will either be punished in hell by the individual who did it or the full wrath of that will come on Christ on their behalf. But in neither way will it be minimized. And when I begin to realize that there is nothing in my thinking and running through my mind that could ever make this better and I have to surrender this to Christ because that is the only thing that could do this. It frees me up uh, to focus on changing the effects of the abuse. And here is kind of an image if I could help you see what's being talked about here. If we imagine God is here and my abuser is here By not forgiving, I am trying to keep my abuser away from God. You can't have him. He's mine. I don't trust you with him. 
And what I don't necessarily realize is that I can't keep my abuser away without also keeping me away. I can't come when I have to keep away. And so at that moment when I say, I forgive you means I entrust you to God. And what you did will either be answered for by Christ on the cross and all the wrath that was poured out there or by you in hell, but I trust God with you so that I can trust God with me so that I don't have to be far away, so that I can come. That, that is what I think forgiveness allows. Again, I think the, the common response there is just that's hard. I think that's where we go back to being honest and we recognize that God is patient. We say, I don't get this. I, I mean, I kind of do. It makes sense. I can see it on the stage, but I don't know. in the same way that we walk through Psalm 55 and we can just have those very honest, raw prayers. And God would give us words like that. Uh, that, that we can have that conversation in the process of forgiveness. And in some ways, this brings us into the role of relationships um, in the way that, that they play in our restoration. Uh, Diane Langberg says, recovery. Uh, learning not to live based on fear must also occur in the context of relationship. It cannot occur in isolation. And in that context of her book, she gives just this beautiful dichotomy of what it means to live in fear versus what it means to live uh, in love. Fear guards. Love welcomes. Fear hides. Love pursues. Fear shuts up and silences. Love expresses. Fear panics. Love waits. Fear keeps a record of wrongs. Not just because I want to be mean and vindictive, because I'm trying to figure out everything that I need to know in order to be safe. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I just, I feel like I've got to have this information. I've got to know everything that ever went wrong because I've got to be safe. And love forgives wisely and graciously. Love doesn't forgive in a way that ignores the things that would make me safe. It forgives wisely but it doesn't cling to those things for my safety. She goes on, it is important uh, to understand that you cannot figure out relationships by yourself. We learn about relationships in relationships. Learning to tell normal hurt from abnormal hurt is a difficult process. I mean, think about that with me in light of what we were talking about with post-traumatic stress. What is the trigger for most of the traumatic uh, symptoms that we would have? It's hurt. And so, again, if hurt is what creates this traumatic response, I don't know what a safe hurt is, what a normal hurt is, what a 
healthy hurt and a healthy relationship is and what is abusive and wrong. And so again, this is where people often get on me and all the time they call me a drama queen and they tell me I'm overreacting. And I think in light of this, we begin to see it's not overreaction, it's hyperreaction. And again, this is where we go back to the benefit oftentimes of counseling. Of just sitting down with someone and saying, this is what's going on. Is this normal hurt or is this like manipulative, abusive stuff? How do I know? And if it is, how do I respond to this? Because I just don't have a category for that. And it doesn't mean going back and reliving all my childhood. It just means how do I live in this moment in light of what happened to me? Diane goes on. We destroy the dignity of others when we refuse to wait for them. Again, I think that's one of the less noted aspects of abuse. That oftentimes after the event of abuse is complete, the person who is abused is not even waited on. The abuser just walks out of the room as if to say, clean yourself up and get yourself together. Figure out what to do with the mess you're in, physically and emotionally. And come out when you feel like you're prepared to watch the world. We destroy the dignity of others when we refuse to wait for them. We bestow honor on another when we consider him or her worth waiting for. I can tell you of whatever I do in counseling, that may be one of the most significant things in cases like this where someone is overwhelmed. They're crying and they're apologizing for being upset. And to just wait. To hear them. I believe you. It makes sense for you to be upset and we can take our time. This is not taking a moment so you can get yourself together. This is taking a moment because that honors what you've told me. And you have every right to feel scared. And I want this to be a place where you feel safe. And, and just the honor of that kind of waiting being very powerfully healing. And she says, isolation was a core component of the abuse. Connection or relationship is a core component of recovery. Most of her relational skills or his relational skills were learned in the context of abuse. What kind of relational skills? Speaking up. Learning to say no. Handling conflict. Not assuming that everyone thinks about her or him the way their abuser did. Asking questions. Learning how to recognize safe people are all skills the survivor will have to learn. And she references Hebrews 5.14 uh, where it says, our power of discernment will be trained to distinguish good from evil. That's what we're talking about. Just how do I know in this situation what is good? Because even if it's good and it makes me nervous, I begin to get this kind of hypervigilant traumatic response that I want to pull away from it. 
And so even when you say, I love you, I want to believe that. How do I move towards that? If you really are a safe person, and you seem to be, but then I don't trust you, and you get upset with me, and that makes you feel unsafe, and I begin to think my fears are right, and I start to trust them again. It's so hard not to trust them. Those kind of skills are how we have our power of discernment trained uh, to distinguish good from evil. Now, another part of restoration uh, has to do with the current marriage. Um, And uh, Dan Allender gives us some thoughts there. He says, "This this is a terrible struggle for the abused woman or man. She longs for someone to take hold of her. On the other hand, she is terrified to be in a position of being out of control. Now that's a recipe for mixed messages. The very thing that I do today that you seem to appreciate that makes you feel so affirmed, I can do it tomorrow and you draw back from me with this look in your eye that I don't know what I did. The person who has been betrayed fears her own longings for connection with others because her longings tempt her to move out in isolation and want something for others, which will surely destroy her. Genuine trust involves allowing another to matter and have an impact on their lives. That should not be a scary sentence, but it is. It seems uh, that a spouse is most often the abuse surrogate. In the marriage relationship, intimacy, trust, and sexuality are set against the issues of powerless betrayal and ambivalence. Again, the kind of person that I share most of the things that I shared with my abuser in a really awkward way that makes me angry is my spouse. That aspect of touch and and arousal and sex and this degree to influence and it just, it is very hard when that experience of sex and marriage and sex is part of marriage and how do I not view you that way. And he speaks to the spouse. Learn to experience righteous anger towards those who harmed your spouse. She wants your protection. But hear this. Even more, learn to weep for your spouse. She wants your compassion. I would say it this way. It's your compassion that makes your protection safe. It's your compassion. Come here. Let me hold you. Thank you for telling me this. I am so sorry you had to carry this alone. I love you. I admire your courage. Everything that I've ever loved about your character seems even stronger now that I know what those things had to overcome in order to be real. I'm here for you. I don't necessarily know what to say. But I'm not going anywhere. And you are precious in my eyes. It's compassion that makes your protection safe. Um, Now again, some other aspects in terms of marriage. Sex may be disrupted during counseling. 
that is an unfortunate reality. There may be times when sex feels completely unsafe. There may be times when sex is wanted a lot in order just to know that you don't find me disgusting and that you're still willing to be with me. And it may be a time of a lot of confusion and disruption there. There may be times when because of just working through parts of this that sex gets started and then it feels unsafe and and you're asked to stop. And um, that is admittedly hard. And that's where uh, I would recommend having a mutually trusted friend or counselor that you can talk to about those challenges and points of confusion. Again, mutually trusted that it's somebody that you and your spouse would both say, this is an appropriate person. I can talk to this person and you're not going to feel awkward or like I'm betraying you or I'm going behind your back or I'm throwing you under the bus. Now, if I could give you something to avoid, uh, don't say, I'm not the one who abused you. Why are you taking this out on me? That's another form of silencing that although I genuinely don't think you mean it to come across this way, it says you should just get over it. This shouldn't affect you. And so, again, I don't think it's a vindictive statement. I don't think it's one that spouses say out of wanting to hurt the other. Um, But it is a hurtful statement. But in order to couch all of this, uh, I would make another statement is that as a spouse, you have an opportunity to show your spouse uh, that they are more than an object of consumable pleasure. That they're not a body to be devoured. That they are a person to be loved, to be cherished, to be known, to be held, to be comforted that you are the one like no other who gets to be the hands and feet and presence of Christ that would say you are precious. And although it may be a hard and difficult process, I would invite you to see the very high calling that comes along with that, the beautiful opportunity that it is. Now I think a, another piece here is to have an accurate mirror Again, if there's not a typo, I didn't create the document. Uh, Your page says accurate marriage. It was a mistype from the previous slide. Uh, An accurate mirror. Uh, Diane Langberg says, Survivors also see themselves as powerless to make good things happen or bad things stop. But at the same time, they see themselves as having excessive power to cause bad and evil in the lives of others. Such a vicious catch-22. I think I'm powerless to make anything good happen. Anything that good happens, I don't feel like I should get any credit for it. But just my mere presence feels contagious and contaminating. And anything bad that happens just feels like it's because of me and my fault. And it just... It's awful. And my... My word of encouragement that may not initially sound encouraging is that you're not going to reason your way out of that. You can hear me say that up here, and you can say, that's true. I do that. That's me. That's how I think. That's how I feel about everything. And I don't think just hearing that so that you can argue yourself with that later is going to be the thing 
that changes that. I don't think you're going to reason your way out of it. I think you're going to trust your way out of it. Or when you allow somebody to really know you. Again, it can start with a counselor, maybe a pastor, a spouse, a friend. And you know they know you. You know they care for you. And in that moment when your shame would want to make your eyes go down and you feel awful, that they can look at you and say, you know, that's not true. And you know they know you well enough that you can look up and you can catch their eyes. And even though you may not feel it, you trust them to guide you well in that moment. In some ways, I hope that's what this seminar has done. That we spend enough time together talking through enough things that seem familiar, that you can relate to, that at this moment, more than the point, I could have said the point three hours ago, and minus the trust that I hope has developed, I don't think it would have the impact. And that's what I mean when I say I don't think you're going to reason your way out, but it's one where you trust your way out. And that's where Diane was talking about a moment ago, that damage that happens in relationship heals in relationship. And so some aspects of accurate mirror that I think would just be important things that I hope you hear from me differently now than you would have heard at the beginning of this seminar. You are not what your history says you are. You are not damaged goods. You are not a dirty little girl. You are not disgusting. You are not what your abuser said you are. You're not a liar. You're not somebody that nobody would believe. You are not what others disbelieve says you are. It's not that you shouldn't feel that way or talk that way about somebody. It's not that you were overreacting. Those things are, that is not who you are. You are not what your feelings say you are. You may be depressed, but you are not hopeless. You may be afraid, but you are not unprotected. You are not what your feelings say you are. You may say, who am I? I get it, but I feel like you're leaving me with nothing. You took away the bad. What do, what do I put in its place? The final two pages in your notebook are just page upon page of Scripture of who you are in Christ. That, again, I think if we just took this at the beginning and we gave you these as kind of happy thoughts that you should think, kind of happy Bible thoughts, it might bounce off much more loosely. But I hope at this point we have cultivated the soil of your heart to such a point that you see God as being for you and with you and in you to such a degree that you can look at this and you can hold on to it as precious truth, as truth that you could believe 
more than your fears. That if your fears were arguing with this, that you could doubt your fears and believe these things. A couple of closing testimonies. The first by Ali Weisel, not a victim of sexual abuse uh, to the degree that I know, uh, but someone who survived the Nazi death camps. And in writing a book about that experience, she says, let us tell tales so as to remember how vulnerable man is when faced with an overwhelming evil. Why? Why talk about these things? Let us tell tales so as not to allow the executioner, the abuser, to have the last word. No! The last word belongs to the victim. It is up to the witness to capture it, shape it, and transmit it. Why do we have this conversation? Because the abuser does not get the last word. Those words of shame, those words of secrecy, those words of destruction, the lies to cover it up, those are not the last word. And they do not get that role. They do not get that place. The last word belongs to you. And it belongs to God. And they are words of hope. They are words of healing. They are words to be believed when you speak them. Words to be received when somebody says, I love you afterwards. The abuser does not get the last word. And finally, uh, from Diane Langberg, uh, one of the uh, people that she worked with, uh, gave a testimony that she recorded in her book. She says, Now my hope is not the childish hope that bad things will not happen. My hope today believes that God can make any situation of mine, even if the circumstances do not change one bit and redeem that moment. That is my hope. Christ's work on the cross affecting every aspect and corner of my life. And I hope because of our time together that that kind of statement can touch you in a way that it wasn't able to before. That you hear the voice of God not as, not as angry, not as distant, but as one who is with you and for you. One who is willing to go into each and every area of your life to bring healing and restoration. Now, one final question that I'll answer and then we'll pray. What do we do now? How do I leave here? I, I hope you would say this has been good, but overwhelmingly good. Overwhelmingly, not like this is the greatest presentation ever, just overwhelmingly in the sense of, of what it welled up within me. So let me offer, if you will, some aftercare points of guidance. First, pause. There is no rush. If you don't pick this material up again for a week or a month, that's okay. 
Somehow it feels like if I get so much information, I've got to go do something with all of it. No. At this point, if you walk out of here and you go, I just, I hear those things. It touched a lot of areas of my life. And God is really okay if I just wait. That is absolutely true. God is patient with you and He works with you uh, at a human pace, at your pace. And it is fine to pause. Secondly, remember. Remember that you are safe. Um, that the fact that you can come here and you have the freedom to come and to hear about something that speaks to your area of struggle. Yet, uh, if you're not safe, then then talk with someone and make sure that we're able to, to get you to a safe place. But in the midst of this, when everything's unsettled, everything feels out of control, it can begin to feel like I'm not safe just because my emotions are stirred when I am safe. So that may be something that you need to remember. Find a, a friend or a counselor to talk to. Okay, maybe it's somebody who came with you. Or if you say, I'd rather talk with a counselor, then if you go to summitrdu.com backslash counseling, uh, you can connect with all the counseling resources that we have there as a way to begin to connect and, and to continue this conversation, not from a, uh, a stage to an audience or from a, a speaker and through a video to somebody, but where you could connect with somebody that can take this journey with you. Here's a big one. Give yourself credit for the progress you have already made. It is heroic that you are here. I say that without doubt or hesitation. The fact that, that you're still in a place where you are pursuing God and you want to know what healing looks like, that you have friendships and relationships where you genuinely care about people, that you have a job and have been to school and that you have it, give yourself credit for the amazing evidences of the grace of God moving you forward to this point. Don't feel like just because there's emotional upheaval right now that you're starting at ground zero. Give yourself credit for the incredible grace of God to bring you to this point. Two important things. Rest well and care for your body. Sleep. Eating food. Probably avoiding excessive caffeine. Getting some exercise, particularly cardiovascular. Those are things that in terms of the physiological effect of stress and the unrest that we feel, uh, whether it's times of a, abuse or stress or just coming to something like this that reminds us of it, those are things that are particularly important. Uh, as a general rule, the more suffering that you experience or you are exposed to, uh, the more balanced and healthy your life needs to become. Uh, just as a way to care for yourself well. And then, if you said, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready to, to reach out to a person yet. If I could... I'd rather just have something that I 
could I do me and God for a little while? If I could pick one resource that we reference, uh, it would be Diane Langberg's On the Threshold of Hope. Uh, it's the book that I think brings together the, the greatest balance of um, scriptural hope and gospel-centeredness and clinical-informed and great compassion. Um, and it's a great way to, to prepare yourself for those conversations of just kind of thinking through, what would I say? What would this look like? Uh, but with those things being said, uh, let me pray for us one more time. Lord, we come to you. And you, throughout Scripture, are a God who hears the cries of your people. And we come to you now and we cry out and we say, we're weak. We need help. We're overwhelmed. Lord, and I pray that you would be present in very tangible ways to each person who is here and each person who's watching this part of the video. Lord, I pray that in the coming hours and days that you would protect their thoughts, that you would guard their emotions, that you would allow them to sleep, Lord, that you would give them people that they could be honest with and feel heard and believed and comforted who would represent you well in those moments. Lord, we do love you. We are learning to trust you. Thank you for your patience with us in that process. In your name we pray. Amen.